I never signed a card and I never filled out a subscription, but for some reason Forbes magazine showed up in my mailbox for several issues and then just stopped just as suddenly. One of them, I caught the cover and it talked about the people who matter. And the feature article began with these words, and I quote, We are fascinated by power. We stand in awe of those who apply it adroitly. I had to look that up. It means skillful, as you're wondering. We stand in fear of those who abuse it. But we all lust for power. Everyone would rather be a hammer than a nail. And the people on this list of the most powerful people, the most powerful people listed here, were chosen because in various ways they bend their world to their will. The article subtitle read, there are 6.8 billion people on the planet. These are the 68 who matter. The article went on to provide bios of these people, and I didn't take the time to read any of them, heads of state religious leaders, even criminals who run global syndicates. And they're on the list because of the vast number of people they either directed or the vast amount of money that belongs to them. And I couldn't help but wonder how many men and women got that issue of Forbes magazine, either on their desk at work or in their mailbox at home, and you know they thought, man, to be among this number... That would be a rival. That would be satisfaction. It's where I want to be. I wonder how many bought into the not-so-subtle message that if you really want to make it in life, if you really want to matter, imitate the men and women in this list. Never, ever settle for being a nail. Always make sure you're the hammer. You call the shots. You put people in their place. And their place, by the way, will always be somewhere beneath you in status or importance or, or value. You matter because you've made it to the top of the mountain. You are king of your mountain. And you have extended that list. Now you're number 69. Which brings up the primary obstacle to becoming number 69. Other people. If it weren't for other people, you could be more easily number one. You'd be the class valedictorian as well. You'd, you'd play first string. Other people are in the way. So how do you deal with people who stand in your way if you indeed, and human nature does indeed, so clearly described in that article, lust to be the hammer and, and, and shrink back from being the nail? There is one way to do that. There is one way to deal with people who stand between you and satisfaction that you believe you deserve. It happens to be a method used inside the church as adroitly as outside the church. You learn to hammer with the tongue. You develop the ability and skill to put people in their place verbally. You bend the world to your will by talking the most, the loudest, the most defiantly you will be heard. In fact, I've watched this play out as instinct in nature. Uh, I mentioned some time ago that live cam located high on a tree looking down on, on the nest of bald eaglets. 
and uh, the mother and father, three eggs. This time they mate for life, and then now in this particular brood, they've got three. They've hatched, and we've watched. My wife and I check in just about every day, and, uh, and, and they're, they're, they're weak, and they're wobbly, but you can just see their fuzzy little heads peeking up over the edge of the nest as the mother comes in to take some, some unfortunate fish and tear it up and feed it. And, and the one that hatched earliest is stronger and a little bigger. And what I've found interesting is that the little heads are bobbing along and then here comes the mother and as she begins to feed the largest one pecks turns on his siblings pecks and and wrestles them down until all you see is that one little wobbly head waiting to get the fish according to forbes he matters he bends the world to his will We also, as human beings, learn to hammer others into submission by maneuvering and conspiring, as we're going to discover in this very convicting text, by slandering and gossiping and judging and whittling down our competitors until there really isn't anybody left but us. We also, by nature, are skilled at this, as we will see. But according to God's standard... We'll see it again in a moment. Those who are the most skilled at this are not necessarily the people that matter most. In fact, in this larger nest called the assembly, the church, they may not matter hardly at all in advancing the gospel and bringing glory to Jesus Christ. Now, if you were with us in our last session together in James chapter 4, we expounded on nine imperatives from his letter. Nine imperatives... And let's get a running start by pointing them out again. In fact, I encourage you, if you haven't already, to take out a pencil or pen and put an exclamation point after each imperative. I'll point them out. These are commands, not suggestions. Nine of them, beginning of verse 7 of chapter 4, submit, therefore, to God. Exclamation point. That's the first imperative in the list. Resist the devil. Exclamation point. Verse 8, draw near to God, exclamation point. Cleanse your hands, exclamation point. Purify your hearts, exclamation point. Be miserable, exclamation point. Mourn, exclamation point. Weep, exclamation point. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, exclamation point. Nine of them. And today we come to the final imperative. In fact, some have called this the Tenth Commandment of James. It's found in verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren! Exclamation point. Do not speak against. The compound verb literally means don't speak down on. In our modern vernacular, we would paraphrase James to be saying, don't run somebody down. Various translations, whatever you may be carrying in here today, put it, don't criticize. Or don't speak evil against. Don't malign. Don't disparage. Don't backbite. All of them excellent translations of this compound Greek imperative. It carries the nuance of running people down. The verb refers to a critical, derogatory speech that is 
maliciously intended to influence others against another, to run that person down. And would you notice that James is clearly talking to Christians. Three times in verse 11 he refers to brothers, brethren. Don't do this, brethren. Don't judge your brother. Don't say this, don't speak this way to a brother. He's not saying, look now, we all know how bad the world is at at all of this, stepping on each other in order to improve their own reputation, cutting people down to feel better about themselves, creating sides, slandering a teacher, a boss, a leader to build their own following. Listen, brethren, you need to go out here as soon as we break huddle and go tell the world that they've got to stop it. No, he He's saying, don't do it in here, brethren. This is all the more convicting. In fact, whenever the present tense imperative is negative, the writer is using it to tell his audience to stop something they are in the process of doing. James is actually saying, stop it. The believers in the first century had the same problem as we do in the 21st century. Stop it. Stop running each other down. That's what he's saying. And he can say it that way, inspired by the Spirit of God, because he knows that in whatever assembly, in whatever generation, in whatever century, the truth is timeless. And we all stand convicted of this, some more than others, but all of us to one degree or another. You see, part of the problem, before we dive in here, is that many Christians believe it's okay to say something derogatory about someone else as long as it's true. If it's true, it's not gossip. If it's true, it's not slander. I mean, if it's true, well, we have a, well, you need to know about that attitude. You need to be aware. We need to be, you know, put this one on the prayer list or whatever. See, we've come to believe it's almost a moral obligation to inform people of whatever it is about somebody that's true, no matter what it does to their reputation or character. James is not drawing a distinction here on whether or not the information is true. If you look back at verse 11, he does not say, stop speaking against one another if the information is false. You notice that? Get it right. And then you can share it. It's not what he's saying. In fact, since the context is including a local assembly of believers to be read in the assembly of of Jewish believers scattered throughout the, the Roman Empire, it's most likely true that the information being shared is accurate. In fact, to make matters worse, James writes the words, do not speak against one another. That construction informs us that they are going back and forth. There's no innocent party here. They're all engaged in a battle of slander. They're all engaged in gossiping about one another. No one is being helped. Everyone is being hurt. There's an old folktale I read recently that originated in a forest up in Canada's Northwest Territories. Just a folktale. Tale is about a small pack of porcupines, I read, who were trying to survive a, a terrible snowstorm. So they were huddling together to stay warm as the winter winds blew, but because of their bristles, you know, they, the more they tried to huddle, the more they pricked each other, which caused them to move away 
Before long, they'd begin to shiver again, which forced them to shuffle back together again. And then they pricked each other, and then they would shuffle back again. Throughout the long winter night, back and forth, this strange dance of porcupines continued to repeat itself. The moral of the story was they kept needling each other, even though they needed each other. Do we have a dance of porcupines in the assembly? James goes on in the next phrase there in that opening verse of this 10th imperative. To further clarify, he says, He who speaks against a brother, or what? Judges his brother. You you could translate, he is presently judging his brother. And the way James describes these two activities, speaking down and judging, he's actually talking about the same thing, the same activity, he's just viewing it from a little different angle. When you run people down, you are judging them. You're judge and jury. You see, this is the condescending, this is the censorious judgment of the Pharisees that caused them to consistently pass judgment on just about everybody else. They weren't as good as they were. And so even when one went into praise, he says, oh, look at that guy over there. I'm not as bad as him. Well, I mean, the story... Apocryphal, I'm sure, of the pastor. He got into conviction for his pride, and so he slipped into the auditorium. He was quiet and alone, and he went down front. He knelt, and he said, Oh, God, forgive me. I am, I am nothing. Minister of music heard as he walked by, and he came under conviction. He walked down. He knelt as well. Oh, Lord, he said, I am nothing. The janitor heard what was happening. The janitor came in, knelt down, and said, Lord, I am nothing. The pastor heard him, looked up, nudged the minister of music, and said, Well, look who thinks he's nothing now. Even in our spiritual disciplines, we need to repent of our own flesh. There are a number of passages, though, I think this is important to understand where the believer is actually commanded to pass judgment and think critically. Now, follow me here. I don't want you to be confused at all. We're told the judge tests the spirits. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, teaching. We're told in Matthew seven fifteen to pass judgment on false teachers, to render a judgment that they are not teaching the truth. We're told to judge someone who is openly living in sin and remove them from the assembly. First Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, I've already judged that man who's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. He said, I have already judged him. When you get together, you need to, to, to remove him from your midst. We're to judge someone as accursed who is preaching a different gospel. Galatians chapter 1 verse 9. The spiritually mature are to constantly make judgment calls between that which is good and that which is evil, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. And one more, the Christian is actually told, and I quote, to judge everything, everything, 1 Corinthians 2, 15. It's the same root word for judge used by Paul there that James uses in chapter 4. So is the Bible entirely confused or what? Not if you understand the context of these commands. What James is forbidding here is judgmentalism. A critical spirit that judges everyone and everything and runs everybody down in an effort to climb over them to the top of the heap. 
See, there's a difference between making a wise judgment, which we're called to do, and having a judgmental spirit. Paul is saying, use your head, your mind, your heart, the scriptures, and make wise judgments. James is saying, don't be judgmental against a brother. There's a difference between thinking critically and being critical. So the issue isn't whether or not you judge, but how and why and whom. This morning you made a number of critical decisions. You've made them already. You decided what time to get up. You made a judgment on that. You made a judgment on what to eat or not to eat. You made a judgment on which shirt or blouse to put on. You had to make a judgment call on when to leave the house this morning in order to get here on time. Some of you made the right call. That's not the kind of judgment James is talking about here. James is telling us to stop the slander and the gossip and the criticizing and the verbal abusing and any other form of speech that effectively takes your beak and beats down the competition to build yourself up. Because I'm going to be number 69. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep moving along toward number one. I will be among the people that matter. I will bend my world to my will and if people get in the way, well, they're, they're, they're just in the way. James would say, you're not a critical thinker. You're just a critical person. You're not making discerning judgments. You're being judgmental. The truth is there isn't a single person on the planet that we cannot fault if we pay close enough inspection James is speaking of that kind of inspection. Like the man Zodiades, a Greek scholar, wrote about in his commentary, a man he knew who was always finding a way to judge and criticize and, and, and beat down his fellow man. didn't matter what they were. He said if it was a poor man, well, he, he was criticizing that he was a poor manager, evidently. If he was rich, well, then he was obviously dishonest. If he needed credit, it's because he couldn't get any. If he had plenty of credit, everyone wanted to just do him a favor. If he was in politics, it was for personal gain. If he stepped out of office, he was no good for his country. If he didn't give to charitable causes, he was stingy. If he did, it was for show. If he regularly attended church, he was just another hypocrite. If he wasn't interested in church, well, then he's a terrible sinner. If he showed compassion to others, he was too soft. If he didn't show compassion to others, he was cold-hearted. And if he died young, well, he missed a great future. If he died old, he probably missed his calling. Listen, that guy, if you could have two minutes with him, would probably pat himself on the back and say to you, well, I am just brutally honest. I'm just brutally honest. I've just about come to the conclusion that the person who likes to applaud himself for being brutally honest enjoys the brutality as much as he does the honesty. You ever met anybody like that? They were born in the accusative case. They will hurt themselves, their family. They'll hijack a church or a business. And the truth is that person was reflected back to us this morning when we looked in the mirror to one degree or another. 
That's why James can write to all the Jewish believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire and make this judgment. This is to all the brethren. To all of you. This is to all of us. Stop running people down. That's the prohibition. This is what we're to stop doing. James describes to us with his descriptive words the practice, a critical spirit, judgmentalism. And now he goes on to give us three reasons at least why this practice is such a serious problem. Here's why we should avoid it at all costs. First of all, when you engage in this kind of activity, you disregard the standard of God. You disregard the standard of God. By the way, not the standards we have set up. But the standard of God, look at verse 11 again. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law, judging the law. Again, James is saying here in context, the person with a judgmental, critical, censorious attitude toward others who passes along information that is derogatory, hurtful, cutting, unkind is violating the law. Now, what law? I don't remember reading one of the Ten Commandments that said it's against the law to gossip or slander. Well, you need to understand when James refers to the law here in verse 11 in the original language, the definite article is lacking. I know this kind of information is so exciting to many of you, but you need to understand this. He's not referring to the law, the Mosaic law. He's referring to law in general. The law of God that's been written on our hearts, the moral law, the law of what's right and wrong, and you know it's right and you know it's wrong, that kind of law. What specific portion of this general law are we violating? Well, to try to climb into James' mind, you'd go back a few paragraphs and you'd hear him talk about the royal law of love which fits perfectly here. He calls it the royal law in chapter 2, which is this. You shall love thy neighbor as yourself, which fits perfectly then with this command in chapter 4. You don't run somebody down if you love them. You don't try to destroy the reputation of someone if you love them. You don't gossip and slander about someone you care about. You pray for them. You challenge them. You correct them. You seek to restore them. Do you judge their sin? Yes. Do you tell your child what you did was wrong? Don't do that again. And in the meantime, here's what you're not going to be able to do because you did that. Yes. Do you correct another believer? Do you say, listen, what you said or did is not biblical? Let me take you to the scriptures and show you where. Absolutely. That's love. In fact, in, in the broader context, church discipline is love. It is born out of a desire to challenge and reprove and warn to the point of withholding fellowship from that person so that they will come to their senses having forfeited something they love and then desire to have it back and be reconciled to Christ and the church of Christ. The unloving thing is to let them wander away in sin without a warning. Would you ever allow your three-year-old to wander out of the front yard and over the sidewalk and into the street? No, it's actually loving to tell them, don't do that. 
And then if they do that, provide some form of discipline so that they feel a lesser consequence than being struck by a car. Someone who is unloving doesn't care. They just derive pleasure out of spreading the news about whomever it was that wandered into the street or got close to the curb. Did you hear? It's true. You want to know. You're not a part of the problem or the solution, but I feel it my moral obligation to tell you. It doesn't help the body. I was sent this. Ethel was known for being the church gossip, little church. She was called the primary grape on the grapevine. One Saturday, she was driving down the street in one section of town, and lo and behold, she saw the truck that belonged to one of the men in her church parked outside a tavern. Before the day was over, everybody in their little church had gotten a phone call from her that Frank was an alcoholic. He had obviously been struggling. They didn't know he had the battle, but evidently recently he had fallen off the wagon. Of course, she added, we need to pray for Frank. The next day, Sunday, when Frank showed up to church, everybody was buzzing with the news. Frank never said a word. Even when he heard what Ethel had reported, all the salacious details, he never even responded. But late that night, he had a friend follow him over to her house where he quietly parked his truck in her driveway and left it there overnight. Don't do that, by the way. (laughs) The truth is, you're really not praying for people you gossip about. And you know what else? We don't gossip about people we're praying for. James says, stop running each other down. You are are disregarding the standard of God, which is love. Love. Secondly, when you do this, you disrespect the statutes of God. Look at verse 11 again. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. What's he saying here? What James is telling us here is that the judgmental, slandering, critical person is breaking the law of love as he exposes law-breaking in someone else's life. And in so doing, he effectively decides which law he thinks ought to be obeyed. Thus he sets himself up as a judge over the law. Let me give you an illustration. I read a week or so ago, it was World Magazine, it was hard to believe. I had a picture of the guy and everything. Uh, he, he, he was incensed about the, the law that you have to wear a seatbelt. I mean, that just got all over this guy until finally he actually went and took the seatbelt out of his car, removed it, and fashioned out of it a belt for his trousers so that he could tell the police when he was stopped that he is wearing his seatbelt. He has too much time on his hands. 
And it was an ugly belt, too. There was a picture of it right there in the magazine. You've got to be kidding. Somebody would say, you know, I never, I never break the speed limit, but I don't wear my seatbelt. What's he doing? He's judging the law. He says, I'll keep that one, but I won't keep this one. I'm over the law. I can decide what I'm going to keep and what I'm going to break. I would never steal from a department store. My goodness. But I would fail to disclose everything on my 1040. Taxes are too high anyway. See, we judge the law. We'll keep that one. We'll break this one. That's his point. To set yourself up as a judge over God's timeless commands, deciding which ones you'll keep and and which ones you'll say, I can't believe they broke that. Becomes like the Pharisee who tithed mint leaves and dill seeds, little bitty seeds. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That one's yours, Lord. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That one, little little seeds. The minutiae of his garden. And then he would steal from a widow. We can do the same. We can keep some commands of Christ and really be passionate about them and tell everybody we are. And disregard the law of love. And have a judgmental, censorious, critical, slandering tongue. We disregard the standard of God. We disrespect the statutes of God. One more. We displace the sovereignty of God. The supremacy of God. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and to destroy. James is being frank here. At the end of that verse, who are you who judge your neighbor? You you can render that, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to play God? There's only one who can save and one who who can destroy. There's only one God, and, and we're not it. God has never run an ad for an administrative assistant, even though we would readily apply. There's only one He is capable of playing judge and jury, executioner and savior. See, to save and destroy, what James is doing is summarizing God's supreme right and power that belong to him alone. Now again, James is not ruling out civil courts, judges. He isn't ruling out critically thinking Christians, discerning believers who render judgments. He's rooting out the harsh, unkind, critical, judgmental spirit that that loves to, lives to find fault in someone else. Why? Because we want to matter more than them. And maybe they matter too much. I'll never make the list if they're in the way. I want to be number 69. James says, look there one more time at the end of verse 12. Who are you to judge your neighbor this way? The placement of pronouns emphasizes the bluntness of James' question. It literally reads, you there. You there. Who are you, yes, I'm talking to you, to treat others this way? You know why James is so blunt and passionate? 
because he knows the danger. When we treat people this way, we cooperate with the devil. He is chief among those who slander and accuse. The language of the devil. In fact, devil means accuser, slanderer. So we are, by our activity, bringing into the family of our heavenly father the activity of the father of hell. And the language of the devil who slanders us and accuses us is always failure, guilt. You'll never get past that. That's fatal. The language of our Father in heaven is forgiveness and grace. Isn't it ironic then that those who want to play God most often end up playing the devil? To slander and accuse and gossip is to imitate the angel who wanted to be God. He wanted to be first on the list. He would be the hammer. He would bend heaven and earth to his will. Let me say, and don't misunderstand, if you want to act like God, then act like God. Imitate him. Dispense grace at every opportunity. In fact, let me offer a challenge to you. I'm challenging myself. Decided to this morning. And I want you to join me, if, 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 if you would. I, I want to see if we can go 24 hours without saying something unkind or critical about somebody else. Now, I'm not saying, try to go 24 hours without saying an unkind word. That's just way out there, okay? All right? <laughs> I, I, I'm saying, try to go 24 hours without saying something unkind about someone else else. Okay? Can you go 24 hours? Not one unkind, denigrating, demeaning word about another person? The president? The former governor? The neighbor? The professor? Your pastor? Try to get through lunch with that one and you might make it, okay? You know, if, if you can't go 24 hours without drugs, you might be addicted to those drugs, right? If you can't go 24 hours without a drink, you might be addicted to alcohol. If you can't go 24 hours without a smoke, you might be addicted to nicotine. If you can't go 24 hours without saying something negative about someone else, would that mean that we might be addicted to criticizing other people? Oh, surely not. <laughs> not us. Well, well, then let's just try it, okay? Are, you, are your palms sweaty? Mine are. Okay, let, let's, let's try it. I've now told two services this very thing. Here I am at my desk this morning trying to think of what to preach. I have no idea. No, I'm teasing. I knew it was verse 11. I never have to wonder that. Seven o'clock, I get a, I've got all this worked out. Seven o'clock in the morning, my father calls me and he calls me to pray with me. I love that. I just love it. And in that conversation, I said something unkind about somebody else. I thought, man, I'm about to preach it and I can't even start. 
So do what, do what I do, okay? Confess it and restart the clock. You're going to fail. Some of you aren't going to make it out of the parking lot, okay? You're going to have to reset it three times before you finally get out of here. <laughs> Just confess it and restart the clock and see if you can go 24 hours. And it's going to be a challenge. You know why? Because all the way back in the first century, the apostle James told every one of them to stop it. We are by nature accustomed to reacting in the accusative case. And I think maybe by this challenge, we'll see it. We'll see it. I was uh, sent this email from a church member, Carolyn, that's her name, a couple of weeks ago. At the top of the email, she wrote, I don't know what this will illustrate, but it is funny. So I tucked it away in my file, and here it is. A man hopped in a taxi at the airport and gave the driver his address, and they took off. Halfway there, the passenger leaned up to ask the driver a question and tapped him on the shoulder, and the driver screamed, lost control of the cab, nearly hit a bus, drove over the curb, stopped just inches from a large department store plate glass window. For a few moments, everything was silent in the cab. And the driver turned around and said, Are you okay? I am really sorry, but you scared the daylights out of me. And the badly shaken passenger apologized to the driver and said, Well, I didn't realize that tapping you on the shoulder would startle you so much. It's really my fault. And the driver said, No, no, it's, it's all my fault. See, today is my very first day driving a taxi. You see, for the, for the past 25 years, I've been driving a hearse. I don't know what that illustrates either, but it is funny. <laughs> I guess I can kind of torture it to say, look, we, we, we respond like what we've been practicing. The culture we've come in, out of, we, we tend to respond that way. Our reactions are going to show us how we would normally respond and react and, and think. So, so be prepared to be startled, okay? <laughs> be prepared. Get ready to obey the law of love in this 10th commandment of the Apostle James. Let's go 24 hours. 24 hours without talking in a negative way about anybody. And, and then, let's go 24 more. This may very well revolutionize our conversations. It may very well revolutionize our spirit and our walk with Christ who alone is the lawgiver and judge.